More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. I imagine there are as many theories, therapies, and techniques on how to remediate R as there are on how to teach a child to read. <laughs> My guest today, Susan Hazley, is in the experienced therapist category and shares some very helpful, practical information about R remediation. She tells us how to move beyond inconsistent R predictions, in addition to a few other creative suggestions. So grab your pen and paper. Let's do it. Today, my guest is Susan Hazley, a speech-language pathologist with over 30 years of experience. She earned her master's degree from Illinois State University and has spent most of her professional time working in the schools but she has also worked in a private practice setting with birth to three-year-olds, as well as nursing homes and hospitals. She has well-rounded experience, and actually she's worked in several geographic locations in Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, where she and her husband, Roger, currently live. In addition, she's a presenter, as well as an adjunct professor at the University of Findlay and Bluffington University, both in Ohio. In full disclosure, she is the co-owner of Arctic Bites, LLC, that's B-I-T-E-S, and the inventor, I love it, and patent holder, wow, of the Bite R, B-I-T-E dash R therapy device. Woohoo! <laughs> Thanks for that. Oh, we need all the help we can get with this R. This should be fun. Welcome to the speech link, Susan. Thank you, Shar. I appreciate your asking me to be on the program. Oh, well, I appreciate you saying that you would be on the program. I'm really looking forward to this. Now, I was just wondering about you as far as doing therapy. And, you know, a lot of times we do work with, you know, disfluency. We work with language. We work with voice. Is speech your first love? In many ways, it is. Um, I like the progress that kids make when it comes to speech sound production. And it's one of the things that um, the teachers in the building notice improvement right away. Language is mm -hmm. something that I really like in terms of it feels like a detective um, agency trying to figure out what exactly <laughs> do we need to in order to help children improve. But when it comes to progress, boy, they sing your praises if you can, if they can understand that child. So you can imagine how hard it is when we have children who say to their parents, gosh, my three-year-old cousin can say my name better than I can. And that's kind of where mm -hmm. I started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So You've worked at the schools a lot. Is that right? Yes. Most of my career has been in the schools. Okay. Okay. And in the schools, you had a lot of ER kids? Oh, I had a lot of everything. In, um, <laughs> when I started in the early days, we would we really just didn't have a good handle on how to, to help kids in other, like the RTI experience, those kinds of things. So I had caseloads of a hundred kids. And that mm. was, those were days where, gosh, I went home crying quite a few times because oh. I just couldn't do effective therapy ever. Well, no, you were trying to just keep all the plates spinning. And how can you do that with a hundred kids? 
Yeah. <laughs> you just can't. Yeah. You just can't. And and fortunately, um, I just retired in May and I um, ended my career at a school district where I was treated as the wise sage. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience and a great way to end that part of my life. I'm still now working, I think, more than I was when I was in the schools um, with my business with the Bite R. Yes, yes. Well, I'm sure that you deserve that moniker. Uh, and it is kind of fun, you know, to come up through the ranks and and uh, and be known as the go-to person to have some of the answers. It is. Uh, there was a, a concern one day. I walked in and looked around at the building, and I finally was like, "Oh man, I am the oldest one here," <laughs> and that didn't feel good. You know, there was something about I'd always because my husband and I had moved with his his company, and so I was always the one who brought in a different point, viewpoint because I wasn't from the area, um, and so it was really interesting to suddenly have been at a place for 20 years and went, Oh my goodness. Okay. Here we, here's where we are. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can relate to that age thing. Yeah. It's a bit of an eye opener, isn't it? And you try not to think about it, but it's always kind of in the back of your mind. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm walking around here and everybody's 30 something. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It is. That's kind of well, crazy. And I like, yeah. I like the energy we get from both sides. And I do remember being that young clinician going, man, I wish I could just open up my supervisor's head and just pour in all of the knowledge and experience. So I, I, I love that having the experience and the, the ability to move from place to place just brought so many different um, avenues. And that's kind of how I met you. Um, early in my second move, we had gone to the speech pathologist in the area, had gone down to Philadelphia and listened to your presentation. And I don't know if the audience knows this or not, but um, the part of the reason why I'm here is because of you. We had, I watched your presentation and one of the things is that you said um, in that presentation that if you don't have tongue tension, you would have more of an uh sound than an er sound. Mm-hmm. And I had taken that to heart. And when I had two little guys that couldn't say the R sound, I knew that I just needed tongue tension. I was trying to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember you saying that so well. And I, I thought and thought and thought, and finally decided I needed to invent something in order to get that, that tension. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember being in Los Angeles, and you were. It was early in the convention at ASHA, and you were walking down the exhibit hall and I called your name and boy, yeah. the look of terror on your face when I'm like, like you looked at me like, oh gosh, I don't know who this is. And they're calling my name. <laughs> yes, I remember um, but that. Went, yes, quite well. I do remember that. Yeah. It was just a couple uh, of years ago at the Asia yes. convention. And, uh, you know, and I kind of looked at, ah, this is a lady that's doing some really good things with her. And I thought, oh, well, she knows me, but I'd really like to get to know her better. And here we are. Aww, yeah. That was so nice. Yes. I appreciate that. It was such a joy for me to be able to tell you how important you had been in in all of my therapy and in, in just in creating something that was helping children who were very, very frustrated. Aww, well, bless you. I appreciate that. I'm so glad that's that something, you know, was helpful. And, you know, it's always fun to hear that it's helpful for the kids. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. because that's, that's why you do everything. I mean, that's, you know, that's why you worked in the schools for so many years. And, and that's why you created your methodology and your device. I mean, it's, it's certainly not because you have nothing else to do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or that it's extremely lucrative, you know, it's because you care. And uh, so oh. let's jump in here and just find out more about, you know, what you have done, you know, as far as your therapy. And also, I would like to find out about your device um, and, and kind of how you went about it. I mean, it's quite an undertaking to, to I would think, to generate a device and to design it and 
to you know manufacture it and the patenting patent of it i just it's like whoa and i i i don't hear you saying that this came naturally or this was something that you did before so i imagine there was a learning curve so i want to get into all of that but let's let's kind of start at the beginning you know i'm sure that you had some kids that you worked with that just would you know, move right into a good er. I mean, you have those kids and then you have other kids that just don't move off the dime. Right. And they're very frustrating. So, you know, was that something that motivated you to really jump in and learn more about er? What kind of happened is that I would do um, in the schools, I had always had that experience with parent participation. And so I used to hold a speech therapy night in which parents would bring in that child that I was working with, mom and dad were there, and then siblings. And so I did therapy with the whole family. And that was a part that I found that when the parents are involved, man, therapy changes so quickly. And those those parents become active participants. And it also then made the IEP easier because they knew what we were doing. And it was wonderful. So I had to... Two yeah. kiddos. What? That... Just, just a minute. Just a minute. Go ahead. Okay. So, what is a speech therapy night? I mean, tell me what that looks like. <laughs> Was it like? Did you offer them dinner? <laughs> you know, I mean, what? What did? What does that look like so that we can do that? Because I love it, that idea. I would invite. Um, it was a twenty-minute session. And they would, I would send out a blanket invite and they then had choices of times. And so they'd give me choice one, two, or three, and then I would send back a response. Um, And now I think that all can be done with technology. But what started happening was then I would plan an activity that pretty much a game activity that everybody could do. And then I just did speech therapy. It was basically what they'd had during that day or that week. And I would spend time doing it. And then parents would jump in and participate. And what I really learned with my preschool parents is that they became faster at correcting their children than I did. Um, It was joyful. It was positively joyful. Wow. And so then I would just negotiate um, time off during the week for having for that. And at that time, I had a son who was in college and was on the golf team. So I would kind of collect that up and go watch him on at golf tournaments. Um, And so the teachers didn't understand it at first. And then now then they got to the point where when we came to IEP meetings, they could see this interaction with parents and knew that I understood the parents and we had a good rapport. Okay. All right. So I'm trying to visualize this. I got stuck at the golf game. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know where that, okay. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. That, it's my brain. Um, okay. No. Were these times that you scheduled during the day? And so. No, they were after school from three 30 to seven 30. I would do this after school. Or did you meet yes. at Taco Bell? Okay. Nope. It was at the school. And at that time, you have to understand my classroom, I think was an old cloakroom. So it was literally six feet wide, three ceiling tiles (laughs) wide and about 20 tiles long. And the parents would walk in and they go, wow, this is a really little room. (laughs) (laughs) And we might have six people in this room, all sitting at my very tiny table with my very tiny chairs. And I would do speech therapy with the student and I would offer brothers and sisters opportunities as well. Um, Parents then were able to just watch if they would like. Um, But I, you know, when we always have those tough parents, you know, there's usually a set or two that, that really didn't understand why their child was enrolled, particularly in language therapy. And um, I would watch some dads who would kind of sit with their arms crossed the first month. And then the second month, they might still have their arms crossed, but they'd turn towards me. And by the third month, they were sitting at the table they were all in. So this was an ongoing thing. I did it once a month. Once a month. So you had speech therapy night once a month. And Mm -hmm. this was during after school times, like 3.30 to 7. And did you schedule Uh individual parents of individual kids or was this a group thing? It was, it was individual families. 
Okay. And then you would, you did this intermittently over time. And then you would have some of the parents that just sort of were like mm-hmm. serial participators. <laughs> they, they would come. <laughs> and they, they always, you know, the ones that came and that's when um, I had two little guys that their parents did all the homework with them. They came to every speech therapy night and they weren't succeeding. And the look on these little guys' faces, it, it just broke my heart because they were so completely frustrated. And that was when I knew I, it, it's not okay. I've got to do something about this. And so I found myself driving. My schools were about 20 miles apart at that time. And I found myself driving between school buildings thinking, okay, how, what can I put in their mouth to get them to feel that tongue tension? What can I do? And that was when I decided that I, I had to invent something. Okay. And it took me a while to figure out what I wanted it to look like, but I knew that I wanted them to have a placement, a position with their mouth, their teeth, their lips, and all of that. And, um, I wanted them to retract something using their tongue and that's how it started. Okay. You basically just invented this out of need Mm -hmm. and, you know, did you create a prototype? (laughs) I went to my orthodontist, um, set up an appointment with him after, cause I'd gotten braces as an adult and I sat down with the orthodontist and said, I have these kids that can't say R. And he looked at me cross-eyed, yeah. like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. And I said, I need to put something in their mouth that's safe. And I don't know what that is, but I know that your materials are considered safe. So he um, developed the first two prototypes. And after that, after we got success, the, sure, I have to tell the story, um, the first little boy had three sessions in and I had just audio recorded him and he listened to himself on the third session. And he said, I don't sound the same. And I said, no, you sound better. And this little guy in second grade walked out of my classroom and I'm doing the happy dance by myself. And he turned around and he walked into my doorway and I was surprised. And I looked at him and I said, did you forget something? And he simply said, thank you. Oh, oh my gosh. I was like a wet dish rag, you know, to have this second grader thank me. I've had adults thank me, but I had never had a child. I just gave me chills. And, uh, and then that same year I had other students say, can I have more homework? Mm -hmm. One little guy, the other little guy that I was thinking of, he said, I need more time with you. And I said to him, the only time that I'm available is when you're at recess. He said, that's okay. And I said, no, sir, that's not okay. I said, what I will do is give you five minutes. So if you want to come, I won't come find you. I won't do anything. But if you come, I will work with you. For the remainder of the year, he missed one session. Wow. That confirms my theory that kids would rather have intrinsic motivators than extrinsic motivators. They'd rather have a feeling and a sense of improvement mm-hmm. and where they know that things are coming together and that they're actually doing something that's meaningful for themselves rather than stickers. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, that is intrinsic motivation where you have a child that just knows that they have a problem and that they're fixing it. Mm-hmm. They are, quotes, remediating it. You're helping them but they have a sense of accomplishment and it doesn't get any better than that. No, it doesn't. And it it was just such an astounding kind of reaction to have kids do that. I, I didn't know how to process it. And my kids had never been able to tell me if their R's were good. And you have to, you can't see me, of course, but you know, I would always stand with my arms crossed and my eyebrows kind of furrowed. And I'd say, how'd you think you did? <laughs> and it was evident that I didn't think they did yeah. very well. And then, yeah. but if I changed an eyebrow, they would go, it went, went, went bad to good. And I could just change the look and they'd go bad, good, good, bad, bad. And they had no concept of it. And so the first time I had a kid shake me off when they were using my device, I was really surprised and gotten. And I looked at them and and I said, do you know what you did wrong? And they go, yeah, my tongue was down. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, do you know how to fix it? And they go, yeah. And so clap my hands and I said, let's get going then. (laughs) 
And I, I just didn't expect that. And I think sometimes it's really nice to hear from inventors. And when somebody invents something, there's a, a concept that they understand all of the ramifications of what a device will do. And it's it's really interesting to know that we don't know that. We have an idea of what we're looking for. Um, but I've had seventh grade boys change their voice quality because of my device. Really? Um, that was really weird. They had these kind of cartoonish voices where they would be like, hi, Mrs. Hazley, how are you today? <laughs> and we, you know, the, the student teacher was working with them and all of a sudden they walked in with that voice, the cartoon voice and walked out with these normal seventh grade boy voices. Yeah. And she looked at me and I looked at her and we're like, what happened? And the only thing we can figure is that when we change the position and shape of the tongue, we change the shape of the oral cavity. And that means that the resonance happened in the oral cavity as opposed to the pharynx. And I think that was what was going on. I'm just going to pass this to you so that you can research it. But check, there may have been something that happened with the hyoid bone. Okay. We don't hear of the hyoid bone and all this, the suprahyoid muscles very often. But that hyoid bone, if it okay. goes down, it can impact the quality of you know your resonance and so on. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, it was just, you know, we so we had surprises along the way that I didn't expect to have happen. So tell me more about that, err. So let's just talk about the production of that sound. What do you think is important? Tell me the critical placements and so on. Well, when um, I've done a couple, read a couple different journal articles and, and some of the ones that are coming up, there's about four different qualities. We definitely need to have those lips and we, literature talks about rounded and protruded lips a lot. And I don't, I can't believe that a single researcher wants us to put W lips or a pucker for an R. And so I have, I have people who say that to me all the time. And I think what they mean is rounding your lips like you have Pringles potato chips in your mouth so that you have those duck lips. Um, and that's what I believe that the researchers really were looking for. And that rounding or curling perhaps of the lips is kind of what they're looking for. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when they do that, we're looking for that stability of the external muscles. And, um, I really like to see a strong mentalis there and so that it helps provide that floor of the mouth so that there's some resistance for the tongue. And then um, the biggest thing I think is the tension. But in addition to that, it's the lateral placement of the tongue. Um, Char Sherry Ann or Sharon, I think it is McLeod from Australia, um, did a, a speech in the 2009 ASHA convention. And she talked about electropalatography where um, there were electrodes um, and a retainer in the mouth and people could see where the tongue placement was. And what they didn't, what surprised most speech pathologists is those lateral edges. We were rock stars collectively. And I say we, as if I participated, I didn't. Um, but the speech pathologists who were there could map out tongue tip placement for all the sounds. but like hardly any of the speech pathologists got the lateral placement. And so it's that inside stability and outside stability that we're looking for in order to get more precision in movement. Let's parse that. Okay. Okay. Let's go back to the lip piece and everybody has their philosophies about things. And there is some literature out there that supports many different things. And, and I'm not sure if I picked this up from you correctly or not. Are you saying that you appreciate and you think it's important to have the lip rounding or no lip rounding? I, I want early on, I will tell therapists when they're working with my device that it's important in those early stages in conversation, you know, that the lips change so quickly in conversation that it's not as important. But what I found is if there's not tension at the lips, there's not tension anywhere. So I, I like the position of a shh where the lips are out, pushed out and strong early on. And then once we get to that conversational level, um, if their R's are good, you don't 
really care about the lips that at that point. But early on, it just really helps provide the tension that's necessary for um, getting those lips out of the way. And I, I will say this, Sharon, I know you've had this probably the same conversation with other therapists. Um, almost always somebody says, well, I've taught my child how to smile to get the R. And I think what they've taught them how to do is to use the lips instead of the tongue for dissociation. Um, when we're retracting our lips all of the time to try to get that tongue to go back, then we're teaching that tongue how to only work in concert with the lips as opposed to individual movements. Yes. Okay. I, I'm understanding you. Here's my take on lip rounding. I would love to hear it. Okay. Well, here it is. So many of our kids round their lips to produce that. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we haven't touched upon this particular facet, but there is a resonance that has to occur when you're producing it. Or you set up uh, an environment, a space, mm -hmm. and you hold it and you're maintaining your tension and so on. And you, but you're creating this space mm -hmm. and you are generating resonance within that space. And it is, it's my sense that many of our kids that are doing a distorted ER are rounding their lips mm -hmm. where they're creating that resonance in a more forward position. I agree. So that lip rounding piece that you're talking about, I try to get my kids to not tighten their lips, <laughs> but to generate lingual tension. <laughs> and because I'm afraid if they round their lips, that, that all of that resonance is going to go forward. I want that focus to be in the back where that the stabilization that you were talking about is. And I call that, I don't call it because it's, it's not my term, but I find that, you know, if we get those back tongue corners, if you will, stabilized on the retromolar pads, and that's a dentistry term, right? but it stabilizes behind the back teeth. And I think that's probably the basic area that you were talking about, but I find that if I keep mm -hmm. that resonance and all the action, so to speak, right in the back, that that helps. But I'm hearing you say that you are tightening the lips right. in an effort to get overall lingual tension. Is that correct? There are actually two different things. I'm looking for the um, the external muscles just to be stable. And when I when I look at um, lip position early on, I want to see their bottom teeth because when the many of the kids that I work with, they do something really bizarre here. I don't know what it is, but they lift their bottom lip to try to lift up their R, their tongue for the R sound. And so when people are covering up their teeth, their bottom teeth in particular, a lot of times that tongue tip is resting right up against either that lip or right up against those teeth. So if I can get that lip kind of pushed forward, I should say, as opposed to round, but if I can get that lip pushed forward away from the teeth, then I tend to get that tongue placement back. Now that's not a hundred percent and it's not every single person, but it does seem to give them when they're using that obicularis oris to push on those lips, then that mentalis is nice and tight. Then it does seem to give kids a little bit more stability and a little bit more tension overall. And what I find is if they don't have, if they're just pushing out their lips without pushing on making mentalis a little bit strong, um, they probably don't have as much tension as we would think. They have some, but they don't have enough. Okay. So the mentalis muscle is basically the front of the chin. Right. And so you're trying to generate some tension there uh -huh. that will overflow lingually. Am I understanding that right or no? That's it does. Yes, it does. But it's more about, it's more like pushing against a wall, having that wall set up so that there's something for that tongue to pull back against. Um, I feel like that tongue is just kind of just floating. My kids, I talk about it kind of being a puppet tongue where that tongue seems to be stapled to that bottom jaw and you ask them to elevate their tongue and they lift up their lip and they throw their head back and they right. raise their shoulders and they, cause they can't seem to find it. Right. And and just early on, it's we're not talking into sentences and conversation, but early on, I like all of those external muscles nice and tight because now their tongue has something to feel against. And I, I don't know if you've had this experience or not, sure, but it was really interesting to me. I've had a couple of kiddos that 
um, cognitively are there intact. Everything seems to be going well. And they will tell me that they have completely lost tongue awareness. Hmm. Um, they lose the perspective of top and bottom in their mouth and they lose that awareness of where their tongue is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been, that part has been incredibly interesting to me. Um, that and adults who've been in speech have come to me and um, said, I need your device. And I'm like, why? And they said, because I can't say ours. And I'm like, your ours are acoustically perfect. And they go, yeah, I know, but I can't say the R. Hmm. And that has been the comment that I've had a couple adults say. And I I kind of am starting to believe, um, obviously no empirical data here on this, but what I'm starting to believe is that these are people who their tongue is making the movements, but they're not aware of where their tongue is. And so what happens is as they become professional speakers, they think that if they have to think about a sound, then they're not making it correctly. Interesting. Um, so that part's been very interesting. And I, and I start thinking about the opposite way. I had students in high school who were on my speech and debate team. This one boy in particular could make this beautiful machine gun sound as if the bullets were hitting the sand. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how in the world are you making that sound? And I I think it's really interesting in that whole um, auditory tactile piece that we have that, you know, there are some people who can hear a sound and imitate it with all, everything is fine. And yet there are others of us who can hear it. And for me, I try to imitate things and my adult children go, don't ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) And so we have this group, you know, that of these two different speakers, but in just playing with my tongue and um, different positions, I have started figuring out how to make dialects. And and that was part of what I did with speech team and, and you know, coaching, directing high school plays. Um, but it's, you know, that whole perspective of how do we sound based on our tongue position is interesting. And so I guess to wrap up the, the lip conversation is I, I think that this isn't a one size fits all. Um, I think that it, and it, it certainly isn't something that's necessary in conversation, but it is early on. We just want them to become aware of all of it and giving them a place to put their lips does seem to help my students get that R quickly. And then after, after they're into connected speech, really, it doesn't make any difference. I don't really care what they do, but early on I do. All right. Well, we can agree that there are a couple of the different approaches and absolutely I think good to have a variety of approaches mainly because we have a variety of kids mm-hmm. and what works for one child doesn't work for another child so I am really big on options so I think that's great now you were moving into an area of sensory therapy would you talk a little more about that well, I'd like to talk about tactile therapy being different than traditional therapy. And and the example that I give a lot of people is that when we're talking about traditional therapy, one of the words that seems to be very challenging for a lot of kids is the word part. And so I would say to the child, say part, and they would look at me and they'd say pot. And I'd go, no, 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 no. Try this again. Part. And the child would look at me and they'd go, pot. And they'd imitate you know, my intonation, but had no concept of whether or not they were saying the R sound. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in traditional therapy, we both, we do this 17 more times and everybody (laughs) walks away angry um, and frustrated. And so the difference with what I'm doing now with traditional therapy is when the child says pot, I look at them and I'm going to ask them what they're doing with their articulators. This is not a new technique. The difference is because of that elastic band that they had in their mouth and that they've used to retract, all of a sudden they can feel their tongue. And so I can now talk to them about their tongue tip position, their tongue back position, the lateral edges of their tongue and their tongue blade. And um, when I pair that information with the University of Cincinnati did a study using sonograms, they found 21 different tongue positions in the mouth not phonemes, but 21 different tongue positions in the mouth that would create an acoustically perfect R. Mm -hmm. And what we figured out, what they figured out was three different constrictions. And they did say the lips had to be constricted. 
Um, that was their first one. The second one was at the pharynx. And I think that's just to direct airflow into the oral cavity. And then the last one, and this was part just blew my mind, but it was really neat, is that you could make an R by having a close approximation with the tongue and the palate anywhere along the palate. And so you can make an R from front to back, which is very different than what we have you know, thought of with the two different R's in general. And one of the examples that I a lot of times will give um, speech pathologists is to ask them to silently say the word try and then to silently say the word part and to think about where the tongue position and placement is for both of those sounds. And when we do that, what we're looking at is that there's so much stabilization with try. I thought when I chose the word try that it was going to be super hard for kids because it was so far forward. And it surprised me because they that's one of the words they get right off the bat, like first session. Mm -hmm. And what I started thinking was that when we started thinking about it was that there's so much stability. When you think about that position, generally the tongue is all the way elevated lateral edges and it's st super stable and you can make an R from that tongue position by curling your tip back and not moving your tongue at all, just curling the tip and or dropping the tip, which was very different than what we thought about. So now we can customize because kids can feel their, mu their muscles their tongues. And so the tactile part of it is I'm going to always be asking, what did you do with your tongue tip? What did you do with your lips? What did you do with your teeth? So they're talking to me about that placement and they're more focused, not on just the placement of the R, but the, the transitory movement. Where was their tongue? Where is it? Where were their lips? Where are they now? Where was their teeth? Were they open or closed? And it, it's been really interesting to me how quickly kids can develop an awareness when I would sometimes spend two, three years and they have no idea what they're doing with any of the articulators. All right. So that is the tactile piece. So are you also focusing on the proprioceptive piece? I think they probably go hand in hand. Um, I, I really think, and I think that they could probably, those two words could probably be interchangeable. Um, with this, Char, in terms of, you know, we're trying to get them to get an idea. And so sometimes kids aren't aware that their tongue is elevating. So I might give them a, an, an analogy of um, that television show. I don't know if I can even talk about the names of television shows, but um, if I can, it's okay. Um, the American Ninja Warrior, where um, and the, some of the kids have seen it, some haven't. And I said, there's these strong people and they, and one of the events, they're inside this little glass room and they try to climb up the walls so that they can ring a bell at the top. And the kids go, oh, I've seen that. And I'll say, do when those people go up, do they just let their hands go and fall all the way back to the bottom to go up? And they they go, no. And I said, that's what your tongue is doing. So when they're doing girl, they may elevate their tongue for the G and then they drop it again for the R. And it, it's been really amazing um, to have kids tell me about the placement of where they're making those sounds. But once we figure out that they can release from the sides, lateral edges of their teeth, they can release their tongue. They can also go right back without having to drop. And so that proprioception, like you talked about, is incredible. And it's really fulfilling for that child. So they get an idea of what they're doing. They're pushing against the sides. So now they've got some tongue strength stability from both pulling forward and back and backwards, excuse me, geez, <laughs> backwards there, but also then pushing sideways on their tongue so that they've got that stability for the movement. So it's, it's like a combination of things. And, you know, they're just like I credited you, there's been a whole bunch of people that have taught me some really great things. And so I've kind of combined a lot of what those other people have brought to the table. Um, and then just and then just added that ability to put something in your mouth so that you can feel it. Now, that's something that you're talking about is the bite R. Correct. Would you tell us what it looks like, how you use it, what the kids do once it's in there, etc.? Fill us in. So um, 
when we're talking about how does it work, what does it look like? Think about the capital letter, a three-dimensional capital letter H, and then sever the horizontal plate, pull it apart, and now put an elastic band between the two plates. Okay. So the, the vertical plates are going to sit between the teeth and the cheeks. The horizontal plate will sit oh, across okay. the teeth, and then the elastic band will go across the tongue. As the child bites and pushes out their lips, they've now created all of this muscle tension. And then we ask them to take their tongue and slide it under the elastic band, lift up with it and pull back. Now that sounds like those are going to be gargantuan movements, but they're very, very small movements. And we know from all kinds of exercise that the ones that kill us are the ones that are the little, the little movements as opposed to the big ones. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, it's that kind of movement. And then it's removed. The child doesn't talk with it in their mouth ever. Um, in fact, I don't want that child to think that the device causes the R sound. I want them to understand that the device causes them to have a sensation that helps them make the R sound. Because I think, I think our, our kids um, sometimes get, say some pretty ugly things to themselves They've had their partners have all graduated and they're oftentimes left and they're in the fifth, sixth, seventh grades. And um, they, they say some pretty harsh things. So we want to make sure that we don't set this child up for further failure. Um, and so we, I just will say it's going to cause some sensation. So it, this device goes in the mouth and then it's removed. Then they're going to create that position. I call it the bite R position. And they're going to push out their lips their teeth are going to come almost closed and the lateral edges of their tongue are going to graze to the inside of the back molars and their tongue is going to pull. It's going to be nice and tight. And then there, there's an orange R on my practice deck that, that for the word to show them where they're going to be. And so initially they're going to say R for the initial words. And then when they get to those medial words and final words, we're going to treat those words as if they had two syllables. So example that we gave before was part. They're going to break that word apart and say, pa, prepare for the movement and say, ert. And a lot of times I can get that early on. And if we can get that, then what they'll do is they will just then um, put that together. We'll pa, stretch it out at first and then put it together. And then we want them to develop some automaticity. So they're going to go into reps of five, reps of 10, reps of 20. And if they can say it in my practice, you either own a word or you can say a word. And we want them to be able to own it. Sometimes I think kids get the message that we want them to think about ours forever and ever and ever. And what we really want them to do is to be able to say it and never give it a second thought. And that surprises children. That, that was something that when I said, I don't want you to have to think about ours, they're like, what? They didn't understand that. So it was really nice that we we talk about some words that we own and some words that we can say. And so I will tell them the word particu particularly, and I stumbled as I said it, is a word that I can say, but I don't own. And it's not that I have to have go into speech therapy for it. It's just a word I have to think about. And I will explain that every adult living has a word or two that they find challenging to say here and there. And so it's a way for kids to get an idea of how to become automatic. So once they go to automaticity, then, then shortly after that, they're in conversation. And it's always been surprising to me. That was something I didn't plan for with my device. When kids would come into my room, we used to do a thing called name three, and it was a categorization activity because I felt like that was part of every school activity was understanding how things are like. And um, so when kids would have conversations with the student teacher, I'm at, at my desk scoring their conversation. I'm like, oh my gosh, your conversation's better than you're at single word level. And so what I started noticing was carryover was happening spontaneously without our doing sentences and conversation, all that. I was just really surprised by that. Um, again, something else that I just didn't know. And some kids would, I didn't give any homework and I still don't because I don't want somebody to reinforce something that's not an R and they wouldn't do it intentionally, but they would inadvertently do it. And I have kids who will leave and come back with higher scores with no homework. And so I think that that 
ability to teach a muscle movement will generate and carry over and it will morph into what works for them. The late Pamela Marshalla talked in her book about teaching retroflex R as being easier to teach and easier to learn. And her students left for several months and came back and all of them were using a retroflex R at that time. So if we can teach them something that works that they can use over and over again, a lot of times it will morph into what works for them and we don't have to teach them specific movements. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds good. I love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> so you have a bite-r.com website, correct? I do. Okay. So we can go there and find out about the device. Now, are there instructions and so on? Yes, there will be instructions that come with it. And then anytime that there's a sale, um, my clients will get a certificate for free online training. So I will walk them through the for an hour of what we need to do and how to do it. And then it's not okay for me just to sell something. If I was going to do that, I would sell jewelry. Um, but right. I want I want my customers to be successful and I want their students to be successful. So I generally do a one month follow-up with an email. And then if they're not having success, they've got some hurdles in that one month, then I will go ahead and set up further sessions, email emails that will go out to the students or to not to the students, sorry, to the speech pathologists. Right. And then we can discuss further what other ideas that we have to help them get through it. All right. So you consult with them. Yes, I do. They're not just purchasing a product. They get you. They do. Oh, that's great. Okay. Is there anything else we need to know about that? Now, it sounded like there was like some kind of a rubber band type of thing across. Does, do you have to buy extras of those or does it wear out or no? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> in, my, in my wildest dreams early on, trying to figure out what can I do? How can I help speech pathologists? My biggest concern was that somebody would try to save some money and um, put a device in a child's mouth and then turn around and put it in somebody else's mouth. And mm. my concern, you know, for what kinds of germs and diseases that we could pass on. Um, so it's, it's a one per one child, right? So one for each child. Um, and so, but I do have on occasion there, those elastic bands will break. And if the speech pathologist will let me know, I replace it free of charge, no ah, questions asked. Nice. So I want them, again, I want to have good customer service, but I want them to have success. Right. Um, and so that's that's pretty much how that, that whole thing works. So they wouldn't necessarily get extra rubber bands, and but that would be the, the way it would work. Okay. You have an email address. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share that with us? You bet. It's um, articbytes, all one word, A-R-T-I-C-B-I-T-E-S at gmail.com. Great. Well, this has been absolutely fun. Now to wrap up, I have kind of a, a different question for you because of all of the different types of therapy and the, all the different kids that you've worked with and addressed all these wonderful things that go along with speech therapy. It piqued my interest when I read the following sentence. This was on your bio. I believe it was online. And it says, my experience with high school children on the speech team helped me to teach teenagers to accept constructive criticism, learn to memorize in a short time, be able to speak on any topic with little or no preparation. That sounds totally fun. Tell me, what did you do with those kids? Um, I was a speech team member when I was in high school, and my speech team um, coach is still one of my um, voices in my head, you know, that, that marks progress. I always want to make Dan proud of me um, as we go through, but I just loved that activity. I loved what it did for me. So I coached my daughter's high school team and then stayed on for 12 more years and, and coached speech team. But we just got to the point where I wanted to do every week was more like icebreakers, those kinds of things. And my students became really proud of telling faculty members and other adults that if they were given any topic, any topic that they could with, with less than a minute's preparation could talk for five minutes on that topic. 
And um, so we did a lot of a lot of work. Um, I always felt like what I did at school during the daytime was to help children who had difficulties with talking become okay at it. And then at night was children who were good at talking become excellent at it. Um, and those are some of my most cherished memories. I have to tell a funny story. Um, and they they both went hand in hand. I was the only speech pathologist in the state of Ohio that was both a speech team coach and a speech pathologist. Um, and so there were a lot of times that coaches would ask me questions about voice things. Um, but one of the things that we learned is that by using different voices, kids could memorize better. And I did it when I was in speech therapy. Um, so if I wanted kids to become more fluent in reading, reading, I would ask them read, to read something like they were a mouse and they would go into this little voice or I would read it like they were a basset hound or my favorite was to wiggle my tongue and do it like we were underwater. <laughs> <laughs> and so when my high school students were having difficulties memorizing, I had them all get their scripts out all at the same time. And I'm like, okay, guys, read it like your basset hounds. Read it like you're a mouse, read it like you're something else. And I heard that during a physics class, there was a group of kids that had been on speech team and there was some information that they needed to learn quickly. And they said, let's do what Mrs. Hazley taught us and let's do it with a funny voice. And all of those kids went around and they read the material with a funny voice. And there were like four or five groups. And of the groups in the class, my kids who had done the funny voices were the ones that learned the best. And it was, and they had what they considered the lower end of the class. Wow. You know, now in, in a physics class, you still, a low end is still going to be high end, but they considered the kids that were on the low end with them. Interesting. And so it was really interesting, but, um, I always felt like it was more for me than it was for the kids. But as I, I now talk to my adult students, it, it was a pleasure all the way around, you know, for them and for me as well. So those are some joyful memories for me, Shar. Thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciated it. So, but we would get them to, we just taught them how to extemporaneously talk. Um, and you do that in an environment where there's not going to be any retribution. And then you practice it and you do silly things and you have fun. And when that happens, what happens is you become fearless and you're able to do just about anything. And and to get teenagers to understand that they can do anything is remarkable. Oh, yes. What a great foundation for the rest of their lives. It's joyful, just yeah. joyful all the way around, you know, and for me, I get to see who, who they've become. And, and some of many of them are so different than they were early on, but they, hmm. they achieve the achievements are incredible. One of my first students became a speech pathologist. And then she was a speech pathologist in a NICU unit. And then she was a speech pathologist in a feeding unit. And she's become now a lactation specialist. And I'm like, wow, she took the bar and then just raised it even higher. So <laughs> it's such a tribute. Yes. You have impacted many lives. And especially over the last 50 minutes here, you've impacted a lot of our lives. I certainly appreciate everything that you have said. You've given us so many great ideas, great information, and I just appreciate you so much. Thank you, Char. Yes, I have a sense that you have even more to share with us, and 50 minutes is probably not enough, so will you come <laughs> back again at some point? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvochart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.